I want to take an opportunity to uh, congratulate Sophia and her entire family on this beautiful day. I was, uh, I was remembering myself uh, being young and in the baptismal waters. For those of you who have had the privilege, do you remember? Do you remember the day? Uh, hopefully it was uh, a joyous occasion for you as it was for me. Um, I had a chance to be baptized by my father shortly before he passed away. And I just, I remember the feeling of the water. I was really, really short though, so I couldn't touch the bottom. So I kind of swam up to him. Um, and it was outdoors, it was sunshine, I remember it. And I've been thinking about baptism in particular because um, I've been concentrating on this idea that baptism is the beginning of a new life, a new birth. That's what we call it. That's why we believe in it. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we believe the baptism should be done by full immersion. That means you go down into water as a symbol of death, death to an old life, and rebirth. You come up out of the water, a new life, right? Amen? That's what we're talking about today, a new life, a new life in Christ Jesus. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We've been studying in our community the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians, chapter 4 today. I'm going to talk kind of fast because it's 12.15, and we've got to get through this. So here we are. If you're in Ephesians, chapter 4, say amen. If you're not there, then um, get there. Get there as quickly as you can. Ephesians chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> see, I believe Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to help us understand what happens, what happens after you are born again. In, in, in the epistle of Mark, uh, the gospel of Mark, we read and we discussed how God sent his son to this earth to live here to, so he could take our place, to take on our sins, our mistakes, to suffer and be killed, the Bible says, a suffering servant. And he came to put his life on the cross, a sacrifice for us, so that he could pay for our old life. So that he could uh, pay for the transgressions, the aggressions that crossed the line of our old life. But, but, he resurrected as a symbol that we are invited into a new life. And I believe, and I am convinced that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to help us understand what a new life is. So we've been studying the book of Ephesians, and he's making this point quite clear. He says, there is one God, one Father, one Spirit. And he says, but to each of you, to each one of us, so follow along with me, chapter 4. Are you there yet? Say amen. amen. All right, all right. We're gonna just, I'm going to take it on, on, on prophetic faith that you'll be there if you're not there. Chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Paul makes this point, and he's going to make it over and over again. He says that every person matters. Each one of us has received grace from Jesus Christ. So I know you, some of you are sitting here, you're a guest, maybe you're, you haven't been here in a while, and you're thinking nobody knows, nobody notices, but that's not the truth. God says, Paul reemphasizes, and I'm going to claim that truth for us today, every one of us, every one of you matters, because to each one of us, Paul says, grace has been given. God in his great wisdom saved Jesus Christ to look upon the earth, and Jesus' eyes looked upon you, and he decided to give you a peace, a portion, grace. He decided to give you something in specific. That's what the Bible claims. To each one of us, grace has been given as Jesus Christ decided it. And this grace was given so that when we put it combined together, the Bible says here, when we combine the gifts, and by the way, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, teachers, and pastors, and evangelists. But when we combine the gifts, we are to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. I want to parse that out really quick. This doesn't mean that we're going to go and, and do community service projects, although that can be a portion of it. But the idea of works of service is another way the Bible uses to describe the word you and I call ministry. Ministry. 
And if I were to ask you, who does ministry, who would you say? Who is responsible for doing ministry? You would say, duh, duh, that's you, right? Pastors do ministry. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that to each one of us, grace was given so that when we combine this little piece that you have and you and I have, then we together become prepared to do ministry, works of service. Only my brother David said amen to that. The rest of you guys are like, ah, uh, how about that? <laughs> are you sure? Are you sure? That's what it says. When we put it together, we prepare God's people for works of, to do ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up so that we can grow up, so that we can reach unity in the faith. Then we will no longer be infants, toddlers tossed back and forth by everyone's curious ideas. Instead, instead, speaking the truth in love, we, we, we will grow up as each part is a ligament joined together. So I tell you this, and Paul says, and I insist that you must no longer live the way the Gentiles do. Paul is trying to make us understand this. He says, that was the old life, and you have died to that. And now you are being born again. You have come out of that baptismal waters, and you are being born into a new life. So you must leave that old life behind. Okay, so some of y'all are new. This is how it works. If you hear something that you agree with, you say, Amen. Or if you don't like to say it, you say, mm-hmm. You nod, you shake your head. If you don't agree, then shake your head. That's fine, too. I don't mind. But you got to engage. You got to interact. This is not a spectator sport. I'm going to convince you that in just a second. The Bible says here, to each one of us, grace has been given. And when we put it together, that's how we grow up. When we put each piece together. So he says, so I tell you, you must no longer live the way you used to. Amen. All right, there we go. Now, see, I try to make it easy for you. I give you like big cues. When I do this... When I do this, you know, when I big pause, dramatic, that's for you to say, hmm. Now, if you don't agree, if you don't agree, that's fine, too. But I just want you to know, you disagree with the Bible. So, you know, that's on you. Okay. Bible says here that we, Paul says, we have died to that old. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to pay full payment for that old way of life. Now the invitation is to a new life, a new birth to a new life. And he's going to explain it here. He says, look at the old way of life, like the Gentiles do. And, and that, that word right there isn't meant to be a racial thing. It just means those who don't know yet. The way the Gentiles do it, it says, they, they, they were not concerned about these things of God. They, they're ignorant about these things. Instead, they are, Bible describes them as having lost sensitivity. They give themselves over to sensuality. What, what Paul is trying to say here is that the old life was governed at the center of the motivation of the old life was just you and what felt good to you, the self. And if you and I are honest with each other, that's primarily how the world works now, right? People do what they like. Everyone does whatever they want. One of the things that, that we value so much about our own society is really the freedom to do whatever you want to do. The things that you believe are true. We are governed by our own self-interests. The freedoms afforded to us allow us, allow us to pursue our own desires, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when we, when we describe that, we mean essentially, I want to do what makes me happy, right? I want to do what makes me happy. But Paul says, in that pursuit, when you are at the center of your own universe, when the motivation for everything that you do is you, 
then you will have lost sight of what God is inviting you into. See, Paul says, that's the old way. But now you are being invited into a new life, a new birth. And in this new way, you are no longer at the center of the universe. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, sorry, you're no longer at the center of the universe. Go ahead, tell them. Say, sorry, you're no longer at the center of the universe. Now, I know... I know that some of you have been waiting to say that for a long time. See, what Paul is trying to help us understand is in that old way of life, when we are at the center of the universe, everything that we do, listen, everything that we do in the pursuit of our own self-interest will eventually, if not at first, but will eventually sabotage somebody else. Everything that we do at the pursuit of our own self-interest will eventually sabotage somebody else. But Jesus Christ came to the earth to lay down a new path. That's why Mark was adamant of saying Jesus is not acting in his own self-interest. He gave up all the heavens, all his glory and all his riches, and instead he came to this earth to suffer, be ridiculed, humiliated, and yes, even be put to death. You see the difference? See, Jesus is coming to lay down a new path, a new way. He calls it a new kingdom. And in this new path... Self is no longer at the center. Everything that Jesus does is motivated by his desire to bless and love others. It's other-focused. You see that? So the invitation Paul is doing here is saying, in the old days, you were at the center of the universe. But if you want to you accept what Jesus Christ has given you, you must find a new center of focus. And in this new center of focus, it is the love for others that becomes your motivation. You see the two two big differences? Love for what I want and what makes me happy? Or the love for others? See, because when you love for others and you want to bless others, you put yourself at the back. You put yourself second. You will be willing to sacrifice and to suffer for the sake of others. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. That's what he came to do. So he's saying here, look, so I tell you, you must no longer live the way the Gentiles do giving themselves over to whatever feels good, whatever they think is is right, whatever makes them happy. But you instead, you, no, 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 you must follow Christ. And what did Christ do? Christ gave himself up in sacrifice for others. So you too must be made new by the renewing of your mind, he says, the renewing of your mind. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is making a case that you have to intentionally accept this new life. Baptism is not the end. It's not graduation. It's but the beginning. It's the symbol of being born. And, and, and when you remember, you, you don't because you can't possibly, you don't remember being born, do you? I mean, if you did, that would be kind of weird. But um, maybe you do. Maybe you're special. But most of us don't remember. And, and, and we didn't become who we are on our own in a vacuum. And it didn't happen on day one. You became who you are because someone helped shape your life, right? There was a mom, a dad, an aunt, an uncle, somebody who loved you, cared for you, disciplined you, clothed you. You only knew how to do a couple things when you came out. (laughs) And they were not glamorous. (laughs) So God is helping us to understand that in this new birth, the same is true. 
Paul says in the old life, you were at the center and you were concerned for yourself, take care of yourself. But in this new life, you live for others, but others live for you. You see it? That's why he says to each one of us a peace has been given, but it only works if we bring it together. That's why he says we're all like ligaments connected together and the body can only mature if each part does its work. That's why he says it over and over again, Ephesians, Galatians, Corinthians, everywhere that Paul speaks, he says, Look, listen, family, we need each other. We were made for each other. But I'm afraid, and I'm just going to own up to this, that as a faith tradition, as a faith tradition, we have sold you a lie. We have sold you a lie. I'm afraid that as a faith tradition in Seventh-day Adventism, we have proposed, subtly or not so subtly, that your spirituality is an individual pursuit, that you're on your own. Basically, we've said, come and get a great this information, but then you take with it, and then you do whatever you want with it. And we secretly hope that you go every Saturday afternoon, and you pray at home, and you do good things, and you grow your faith, and you study your Bible, and you do your, your quarterlies and, and all that stuff, and, and, you, and, you, and you sacrifice for others. We secretly hope that, and then when you come back, that you've done all that. But chances are, <laughs> you left here, and you forgot all about what we talked about. Chances are some of us have gotten uh, around this idea that essentially spirituality is something that you do on your own. That the growth of your new life as a Christian is something that you have to figure out on your own. And that some of us are better than others and some of us deserve praise for being better than others. And when we come back, we want to show just how grown up we are. Isn't it the funniest thing? When people try to show how mature they are, that they look so immature. And isn't the funniest thing that that's exactly what happens with Seventh-day Adventist Christians? They try to show how Adventist they are, how mature they are, but they end up looking really immature. The truth is, we have sold you a lie. The church, the Adventist faith tradition has sold you a lie. That you were supposed to sort of just receive this from me and then go and make good stuff out of it. That's, that's, that's not what Paul says. That's not what he says. It's not what Jesus says. It's not what he lived. Jesus got in the mix with people. Ellen White says that Jesus won their confidence. It's like he touched the untouchable. He hugged the unhuggable. He, he hung out with them. He did life with them. They cooked meals together. He learned specifically what was wrong. And then he won their confidence. And after he blessed them and helped them, then he said, now follow me. And Paul is saying, for us, this new life must be markedly different from the old one in that particular way. That we no longer live as islands. We no longer live individually trying to sort out our own spirituality. You know how I know this? Because every time I talk to somebody who's struggling, I say, well, why don't you, why don't you come in? Come join me. And they say, no, no, no. I need to get myself together first before I... Right? I need to work on my stuff first before I... And, and I'm saying, that's just not what the Bible teaches, friends. It doesn't teach that. What the Bible does say is, yes, you can check the status of your growth, and we're going to do it in just a second, but once you realize you need growth, you got to understand you can't grow on your own. you got to get plugged back in. I am... Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches remain in me and by remain in me he means remain connected to each other amen, amen. 
We need each other, but we need each other more than we've been willing to admit. Now, here's a health check. You know, this is, uh, I, took my, I took my daughter to the doctor this week and, and, you know, for a specific reason. But when he sat there and the doctor looked at me and he said, uh, you realize she hasn't been in in a few years. And I was like, oh, well, she said, he said, you're supposed to come in for a yearly checkup, right? You're supposed to come in for a yearly checkup. And he's like, it's, I haven't seen her since kindergarten. She's now attending fifth grade. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't know what to do. I sweat. And he's like, oh, your wife's a doctor. And he's like, oh, I get it. Um, <laughs> um, you're supposed to get a checkup because a checkup alerts you to what might not be visible yet, but maybe you need to work on. We're going to do a little health checkup right here. You ready? Look, Paul says, okay, I'm not going to make it up. So look in the Bible for yourself. Right? We're in chapter 4, beginning with verse 25. Follow along with me. Paul says, all right, we're connected. We need each other. And here's how you can tell how much you need of the others. Number one, therefore, each of you, verse 25, chapter 4, therefore, each of you must put a falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbors, for we are all members of one body. Paul says, let's stop telling lies. Let's speak the truth to each other because we are all neighbors to one another. The motivation for speaking the truth is because we are trying to do good for the other. So how are you doing in that department? Are you a truth teller or a truth withholder? Now, if I were to ask you, you probably wouldn't say, I, uh, are you a liar? You'd say, no, I'm not a liar. I'm not a liar. But are you just not telling the truth? <laughs> I used to tell my, uh, my middle daughter, I used to say, you know, something happened in the house. And I'd say, I said, what, did you do this? And she would look at me and I said, don't lie. And she would say, I'm not lying. Tell the truth. I would say, she says, I am. And then I would say, okay, well then tell me what really happened. Oh, you want to know what really happened? Oh, okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> See, what Paul is saying here is if we're going to help each other, we must tell each other what really happened. Better yet, what is really happening? Listen, listen, family. If you're struggling today, and you're here today, and your brother and sister in Christ says, how are you doing? And you say, great, I'm doing fine. You are not speaking the truth. You are withholding the truth. And by withholding, you are hurting yourself and them because they cannot put their piece of the puzzle together with yours. The only way we bless each other is if we know the truth about each other. Now, I'm not saying you got to confess to everybody, but I do believe that God has placed somebody near you in this community that's just the person you need. And it might be the person who's going to tell you like it is. I'm also not telling you to sit out front and just start truth bombing people. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what we're doing. Pastor, you need a haircut. I already know that. I, we, we don't need that. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is self-revelation. Self-revelation. We're not talking about accusation. We're talking about self-revelation. Paul says, if we're going to grow together, you've got to reveal a little bit of yourself. Check one. How are you doing in that department? If nobody knows but you what's going on in your life, guess what? You're not growing. 
If nobody knows except you, you cannot grow because you need people to help you. Number two, look at this. <clears throat> We're in verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Are you an angry type of person? Listen, it's okay. Anger is all right. Even God gets angry. Anger is a response to injustice and God placed it in you. You're supposed to be, you're supposed to have a reaction to injustice. But what you do with that reaction is what determines whether or not it will grow somebody or it will hurt somebody. In your anger, do you want to get even? Do you want to settle the score? you want to be vindicated? That's not from God. But if in your anger you realize you messed up and you can do better, then yes, by all means, do that. In your anger, you realize there is injustice in the world and you want to do something about it, then yes. The Bible says here, in your anger, do not sin. You see that? In your anger, he understands. How are you doing in that department? Are you angry? Are you angry right now? And that, not the kind of anger that's like, you know, I'm going to hold my breath. The kind of anger that, that is in there inside and won't go away. See, Paul says, don't give the devil a foothold. You know what a foothold is? It's a way to hold a place in order to gain entry and by entry access and by access to destroy. See, what the devil knows is that if he can get you angry at your brother or your sister, your mom and your dad, and, and if he can let that stay in there without resolution, it will eventually, like a cancer, eat you from the inside out. You know how I know? Because I know that some of you guys don't talk to your siblings and haven't done so for decades. I know that some of you guys still hold resentment to your best friends and your moms and your dads and you feel and you feel righteous in your anger. What I'm here to tell you is you're not growing. You're not growing. Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the devil get a foothold in your life. He will destroy you. In your anger, do not sin. Clear your spirit. Apologize and forgive. Apologize and forgive. Listen, I know you want people to make it right, but let it go. Remember, remember. God says, the meek shall inherit the earth. And the meek believe and understand this wasn't fair, but it's okay. I'm willing to suffer for the sake of others. In your anger, do not sin. And one more we're going to go to today. Listen to this. And he who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work and do something useful with his or her own hands so that they may have something to share. Now, when I read that and I thought about you, I would say, none of you guys would go, what's that got to do with me? Don't steal. That's something you tell kids, don't steal, right? Are you a thief? Anybody willing to admit that? Are you a thief? Do you, do you steal? No one's going to say yes, right? But why would include it in here? I mean, one of the great commandments that thou shalt not steal. But why would he include it in here? Well, I was fascinated. I'm just going to tell you guys. I came across a research uh, by uh, a man named Dan Ariely. He's a professor at Duke University who has, uh, uh, teaches a behavior um, psych, um, uh, psychology. And he had an experiment that fascinated me. He went to college campuses 
and uh, proposed an experiment, a social experiment. I don't want to see what you think what would happen. He put together uh, a sheet of uh, mathematical problems. Not complicated. It's not significant like algebra. Just simple mathematical problems. 20 of them in one sheet. And he got test subjects and he offered them money if they could solve these problems. Uh, like I said, it's not complicated. It was just simply you had to add it up a few things, but it would just take a little bit of time. On the page, there were 20 potential problems and he offered to pay them for every one of them that they solved. And so in the control group, he gave them the sheet and had just five minutes to, co to complete as many as they could. And when they were done, they would bring the sheet and present it to the, to the grader. And however many they were able to complete, they would get a dollar for it. So what he found is in the control group, in about five minutes, most average people, you know, the curve bells, but the, the majority of people could solve only about four problems in about five minutes. So they would get $4. But then he introduced, then he introduced a shredder option which he said to the test subjects, when you do the problems, when the time is up, you can take your paper at the back of the room and shred it, having self-graded it, and then you just tell the person how many you solved, and you will get paid. So you could shred your work and just tell them. How many problems do you think most people said they solved in five minutes? What would you do? The average person solves four. How many do you think you would claim? <laughs> well, what he found in his research was fascinating. He said that, that for all, all groups, when the shredder option was put in, suddenly and across the board, everyone was smarter. And everyone averaged six. Six problems. So they got paid $2 more than everybody else. Now, at first glance, you might think, well, that's not that many, right? And what we're concerned with and what his research reveals is that a lot of people think they're afraid that with the shredder option, people would say, I solved all 20, right? They're big cheaters. But what he found, and he interviewed 30,000 people, college students, he found that there were a handful of big cheaters. Maybe a dozen. And these big cheaters stole $180, if you will. But everybody else cheated in small ways. Of the 30,000, 18,000 or so cheated enough to get $36,000 out, extra cheated money. It's not the big cheaters that are ruining the world. It's the little ones, like you and me. He found it fascinating. He said he tried all ways of doing this subject. If he gave more money, actually people were apt to cheat less. If the dollars were not a dollar but 50 cents, um, they were actually more inclined to claim a little bit more. He tried all variations. He went to all people groups. Ages, it didn't matter. Once given the shredder option, people think nobody knows I can snake a little bit. I can take a little bit. So I'm asking you, are you a thief? No. Or are you think, well, I'm not a bad person. He says there's this relationship between what we do and how we like to think of ourselves. And we're willing to play in the middle of that. We're willing to say, well, this isn't really dishonest. We find ways of rationalizing. We won't cheat big. We won't embezzle or steal. We would just not claim as much of taxes. Where are you? This is a health check. Where are you? The one thing he found fascinatingly that was a deterrent, 
He tried all kinds of things. He put an accomplice in the room. What if there was a known cheater? He put a, a, some, a blind uh, test collector who couldn't tell. He found all, but, he, but everyone still averaged the same. But the one deterrent was he took 450 students at UCLA and he said, just before you administer the test, just before you take the test, I want you to think of the Ten Commandments. And all 450 students did not cheat. Because what they didn't know is that when they put the thing in the shredder, the machine didn't actually shred. That's how they were able to tell exactly what the real score was versus what they claimed. But in these students at UCLA, when they said, remember the Ten Commandments, 450 didn't cheat. you believe that? See, here's what we're trying to say to you. The normal pace of life, the normal trajectory of life, the way the world works is in that direction. Look out for yourself, even if, even if it's just in small ways, this isn't going to hurt anybody. No one will know. My wife won't know. My husband doesn't know. My kids don't know. Nobody's watching. I'm not hurting anyone. That's foothold. That's a foothold. And that foothold will eventually crumble you. Paul says instead, Remember the Ten Commandments. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't let the devil get a foothold. Don't let the devil put his foot in there. No, you keep your eyes on Jesus and come into a new life with Jesus. And the way we grow in this new life is by blessing each other. So how about you? Are you tired of living that old way, just coming up empty, seeking after yourself no matter what it costs others? Friends, we have this opportunity here, right here at Bonita in San Diego, to show the world and to show our surrounding neighbors and communities that there is a new path. And in this new path, people matter. Every person matters. In this new path, in this new life, every one of us has something to contribute. And we can, in fact, make things better. We can, in fact, speak in the truth in love, help people grow, help people become, help people mature. We can, in fact, not hurt each other, even in small ways, because we owe our allegiance to a new king, to a new Lord, to a new Savior. My invitation is for you and for myself that we would not let the devil gain a foothold, but we would instead throw ourselves fully and wholeheartedly into the community that God has given us so we can grow each other's faith. Would you please stand and sing with us as we close?